Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in History. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Sunil Amrith about his beautiful new book, Crossing the Bay of Bengal, The Furies of Nature and the Fortunes of Migrants. This came out in 2013 with Harvard University Press. It's a story that weaves together strands of historical narrative that we typically think of as belonging to separate studies and as accomplished by different people. So this is a story that is at the same time an environmental history, a political history, a cultural history, a social history, a history of migration, of humans, of a sea, of groups of people, of citizenship, all at the same time. And it works together really beautifully. And at the same time that it encompasses these different components of what a historical archive is and what a narrative looks like, it asks us to question the boundaries of these fields as distinct areas of inquiry. So it really, really beautifully and elegantly shows the interconnectedness of not just the peoples who have lived on the shores of the Bay of Bengal since the 15th century and who have traveled across and within its waters, but it also at the same time tells a story that weaves together the politics, the environment, the natural and human histories of these historical phenomena in ways that make all of them feel absolutely central for understanding each other. Over the course of the chapters, Sunil introduces a number of individual people, um, and we follow their journeys as we follow the larger historical Uh, cases and the larger historical transformations that they're part of, he also introduces the sea as an individual. He introduces monsoons as being important historical actors. And we get a picture of a really wonderful way of rethinking regionality in history. So I'll stop there so that you can hear um, the rest of the conversation. It was a fascinating conversation, and I hope that you'll have a chance to read the book because the nature of the conversation doesn't at all give you a sense of how beautiful the prose is and how engaging it is. But also, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I really, really did, and I also really enjoyed the book. We're here today to talk with Sunil Amrith about his new book, Crossing the Bay of Bengal, The Furies of Nature and the Fortunes of Migrants. Welcome to New Books in History, Sunil, and thanks very, very much for taking the time during what I imagine is a very, very busy time of the year to talk with me about your awesome new book. Thank you so much, Carla, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, Sunil, let's start as is um, traditional um, for me in the interviews that I do by, just by starting at the very beginning. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the fields of South and Southeast Asian history? And I say that, um, we talked a little bit about this earlier, I say that knowing that it's precisely the nature of these fields that the book really productively um, entangles, right? The book really productively complicates. So, but So I know that the first question I'm starting with is already a complicated question. But regardless, what brought you to the general field of which the book is a part? Um, 
I suppose the most fundamental answer is, is slightly autobiographical, which is that I grew up in Southeast Asia um, with a lot of family connections in India. So that whole world that I'm writing about um, has really been a part of my life from, from my earliest memories. And I suppose what brought me to the study of it was really the disconnect between what I knew to be true, which is that this whole part of the world is very closely connected on a cultural level and an everyday level, and what I started to read as a history student, which really, I realized that a lot of scholarship didn't bring out those connections, that there was such a divide, certainly in the 1990s when I was studying history at university between Indian history on the one hand and Malaysian history or Burmese history on the other, that I didn't feel like I had the tools to think about the part of the world that in another less academic, less formal sense, I felt like I knew quite a lot about. And um, as I sort of alluded to in my first question, one of the wonderful, wonderful things about the book is it really opens up the way we think about regionality as historians. And so um, what actual region this falls into, you know, South or Southeast Asia is something that we'll talk about later and the productiveness or not of those categories um, we'll talk about later on in the book. But this is um, really useful to hear about this now. So the book itself looks, broadly speaking, at the history of the Bay of Bengal from a number of different frames, and we can loosely characterize these frames as environmental, political, social, cultural, including many others. How did you come to this particular topic, and how did you decide to write a book about it? The project started off as as somewhat narrower than what it ended up being in the end, and that was specifically a history of South Indian migration to Southeast Asia. Um, And even more specifically than that, it was largely South Indian labor migration to the plantations of Malaya um, and to work in the urban economy of Burma. That in itself... is a huge part of the story that the book does tell. But I found, I started working on this around nine years ago, and I found that the more research I did, the more I was interested, uh, not just in that process of migration, but really in the um, production of space that those movements of people made possible in terms of the movement of ideas, of culture, uh, but also some of the material connections, the environmental connections between uh, the coasts of the Bay of Bengal region. So I would say that it was only partway through the process that this became a, a biography of a body of water or a way of thinking about space which put the Bay of Bengal at the centre of the map. And in some ways it started as a thought experiment, and that was, what would it mean to think of South India as part of the Southeast Asian world rather than, as we are accustomed to thinking of it, as part of the Indian nation-state? Uh, what would happen if we sort of reoriented our map to put the Bay of Bengal at the very centre of the story, as I think it was for a lot of these migrants that I started off looking into. Um, And I think the project, the book, really grew from that kind of set of questions. Now, the book itself um, covers a large swath of time in the history of this unit, this object, this actor, this bay, this body of water. So what I'm going to do before starting to ask you specific questions about the chapters is I'm going to very, very briefly lay out 
the basic narrative arc of the bay itself so that we can get into the details. And this is something that you go into in the prologue in a way that's really, really helpful. So for hundreds of years, the bay was a major highway between India and China. This is a maritime highway. It becomes a space of competition between European powers and, as you describe really helpfully in the book, their Asian rivals, as as these powers expanded into Asian waters beginning in the late 15th century. So then the Portuguese become ascendant until the 17th century, and at this point, the power of the Dutch and English grows. By the early 18th century, the coasts of the bay hold footholds for English, Dutch, and French East India companies. By the beginning of the 19th century, the British are dominant. They remake the sort of the region as a heart of a global regional economy, and then This world collapses in the middle of the 20th century, and this happens for various reasons that we'll talk about. And the book takes us all the way through from these early instantiations of the Bay in the 15th century through the 21st century, with the Bay as a sort of space of contest between India and China, among many other things. Okay, so that's the super quick and dirty brief um, framework within which we'll now go into the the details um, that you really helpfully expand in the chapters. So with that in mind, um, let's get into the first chapter. Now, one of the first things that struck me uh, in terms of the craft of the book, and it's a really beautifully written book, a very vibrantly written book that really brings individuals to life as well as bringing water to life, a sea to life, and some groups of people to life, is how you begin each one of the chapters. So each chapter begins with the account of an individual that then takes us into this larger story. Can you start off by talking about that as a writing strategy, and then we can get to one of the individuals that starts the first chapter, which is this man, Palanasami Kumaran. Um, Sure. I think one of my main goals in writing the book was to do whatever I could to bring out the individual life experiences of a lot of people whose lives were sort of made by their journeys across the bay, often circular journeys back and forth across the bay. And this was a huge challenge because a lot of the people I write about are are relatively minor characters, if you like, on the on the grand stage of Asian history. They're people who've left few records. There are people. They are people whose uh, traces in the archives are often very fleeting, often very slight. And one of the frustrations of, of taking that sort of collective biographical approach to this book was was the sense that so many of these individuals. Um, only very briefly appear in the record. And so often I was frustrated by not being able to tell their stories whole, but only in fragments. But nevertheless, I did decide to start uh, most of the chapters with an individual character, partly just to give a sense of agency to the book. The idea that the way I wanted to write about the Bay of Bengal was not as this grand anonymous force that's shaping people's lives, but really rather as, as a very human sea, as a sea that shaped the lives and imaginations of, of many millions of people, a very small handful of which we know enough about to perhaps say a little bit about their experiences. Now, one of the individuals that emerges right at the beginning of chapter one um, is this individual, Palanasami Kumaran. Now, he's a laborer who was heading to the rubber plantations of Malaya 
and epitomized, as you describe him in the chapter, the migrant of the early 20th century. Now, you mentioned speaking with him about his travels over the course of a series of interviews. So um, could you talk a little bit about him? What importance does he have to this part of the story? And um, what was your experience interviewing him like? He was an absolutely remarkable man. Um, He was in his 90s uh, when I interviewed him in 2007-2008, absolutely razor sharp in amazing health. And I suppose one of the things about his story that was so striking to me is how unusual it is, because in many ways, his is the almost mythical story of rags to riches. Uh, He went to Malaya as a rubber tapper in 1937 when he was a young man. Um, By the time I interviewed him, uh, 70 years later, he actually owned part of the land that was the rubber plantation in which he went to work as a labourer in 1937. Um, Every single one of his children and grandchildren um, is a successful doctor in Malaysia. So in that sense, he was very untypical. And yet in terms of the circumstances of his migration in the 1930s, he was like so many others. He um, didn't take a very firm decision to migrate to Malaysia. A lot of it was about chance. It was about circumstance. He'd heard um, in his village that, that people were making a living in Malaya, that others had gone to Burma, and that very specific family circumstances, in this case, a household fire, uh, led him to seek his fortune overseas. And the thing that struck me about the way he told his story, which so resonated with the picture of migration that I was building up from other sources, is that no one ever intended to stay in Malaya. And he said this to me time and again. He said, we thought we'd be there for a couple of years. Um, And of course, by the time I interviewed him, he'd been in Malaya for 70 years. And I was struck by the fact that he'd lived through uh, so many changes of political regime. He lived through the Japanese occupation. He lived through uh, the reestablishment of British colonial control. And then, of course, through Malaysia's independence, and he's, of course, a citizen of Malaysia today. Um, And I spent many days uh, talking to him, and it was just an extraordinary experience for me uh, because it brought to life so many of these stories, uh, so many of these archival documents that I'd already by that stage spent quite a few years looking into. Now, the story of how he ultimately got to where he was by the time you interviewed him and Uh, What kinds of circumstances brought that about, ultimately well before his lifetime and also during his lifetime, is a story that the book is going to continue to tell, and it brings us all the way to uh, the kind of culmination of his story at the end of the chapter. But before we get there, one of the things you do really beautifully early on in this first chapter is to remind us that individuals as part of the story weren't only human individuals. And the individual that emerges here uh, with a really lovely biography that you give it is the individual that is the Bay itself. So this chapter outlines what you call the life of the Bay, gives a biography of the sea. Can you talk a little bit about that approach um, as part of your historical craft and uh, the, the importance of that conceptually to the kind of work that you're doing in this early part of the book? I really love that phrase um, that you've just used, Carla, the, the idea of a biography of the sea, because I think that's quite a resonant way of, of, of capturing what I was trying to do with this. Um, and undoubtedly, I was very influenced in writing this chapter in particular, but I suppose the book in general, by the general tradition of oceanic history and historical scholarship, um, 
needless to say, going back to Prodel's great history of the Mediterranean, but also a lot of work in both Atlantic and Indian Ocean history. And the idea that these seas do have a life of their own, uh, not only in terms of their biodiversity, in terms of the physical forces that give them life. And in the um, case of the Bay of Bengal, the most important of those is, of course, the monsoons, which really are essential to the biography of the Bay of Bengal. That's what uh, not only shapes the sea and its currents, but of course shapes its human history to an extraordinary extent, at least before the 19th century. So what I was trying to do by, in a sense, telling the story of the sea uh, was to give it, to make it a character in the book as well. Uh, Not in a way I hope that sort of projects or ventriloquizes the Bay of Bengal too much, but nevertheless to show that it's not a passive actor. It's not simply backdrop to the story I'm trying to tell, but that the very specific circumstances of the Bay of Bengal's uh, biological and natural life actually tell us a lot about its history as well. Great, thank you. Now, as we move from this really, um, really wonderful biographical approach to this very unusual kind of actor in which, in this part of the story, you're not just asking us to think more flexibly and or reminding us to also think more flexibly about our notions of what gets to count as a character, but also to think more flexibly about how we understand the divisions, artificial, um, though they may be, between modes of historical accounting, economic, political, cultural, environmental, but you're also sort of opening up here this early stage of the biography of the sea as a way of telling the stories of the other characters who are going to come into the story. So the second chapter really sets out the story of the emergence of the Bay of Bengal as a center of commerce and as an interconnected center of commerce. The story opens with your own visit to a shrine in Nagore, which is a region hit hard, as you describe it here, by the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004. Now, this is a really powerful way to open this part of the chapter, and we'll talk about the the importance of this chapter in terms of the commercial story that you're telling, but can you talk a little bit as a way to bring us there about the way, as a historian, you're navigating here and also bringing together your own experiences and your own uh, biographical elements with the biography of the sea. Um, was this, or how did you think about the ways that you wanted to balance these two elements of the story, the archive of the Bay and the archive of your own personal experience, and why was it important for you to personally engage the reader um, through your own story as well as with the story of the sea itself? I think in the process of writing this book, the travels um, that took me really all the way around the Bay, more or less, over a period of several years were really important to shaping my imagination of this region. Partly because I think going to these places, especially the smaller places, the places where it's often very hard to believe that these small coastal towns in Tamil Nadu were once great ports. And that's one of the things that struck me on these travels, that it actually takes a lot of historical imagination in some of these cases to actually imagine that the places that you are visiting in the 21st century were what they were before the 19th century. And yet, even 
having said that, I think there are just so many vital traces of this cultural world that I was trying to sketch, that I was trying to put together from the archival sources, that being there, being in a lot of these places just made me see things which perhaps a purely archival approach to this would not have done. And partly that's just how much the texture of everyday life, whether that's in architecture, whether that's in food, whether that's in public spaces, reflects this very long history of um, connectedness and of cultural exchange around the Bay of Bengal. Nagore is an excellent example of that. I mean, Nagore was a um, predominantly Muslim trading town in Tamil Nadu, which had connections with Southeast Asia long before um, European dominance. And there's a certain longevity to those connections. The fact that even today, Nagore remains a major pilgrimage site, which draws pilgrims from across Malaysia, Burma, Indonesia, uh, that reminds us that we're not just telling a modern story. We're not just telling a colonial story. And perhaps uh, more than some, I needed reminding of that because I'm very much trained as a modern historian. So I think to some extent, traveling around the Bay was one of the things that opened my eyes to the need for this book uh, to go before, uh, to go beyond the 19th and 20th centuries, to go earlier in time than that, but also to say something about the present day. Wonderful. And I think this works beautifully um, in that respect. So along those lines, as we, as I previously mentioned in my little um, brief description of the major narrative arc of the Bay, that this is a period in which you're describing that the Portuguese expansion across the Bay, the rise of the East India companies, and the, the importance of spices and the concomitant market in cloth and cotton that create this kind of commercial network that's going to continue to intensify throughout this uh, history that you're going to tell of the Bay, one of those commodities being, of course, human beings. Um, so the, the commerce in human beings is going to turn out to be very, very important to this story. But you also mention and highlight the importance of Tamil Muslims in creating a web of commerce and culture across the Indian Ocean, and that's perhaps part of the story that's going to be uh, more unfamiliar um, to readers. Certainly, I learned a whole lot about that when reading the book. So can you talk a little bit about that? Who are the Tamil Muslims, and what is the importance of them to this part of the story that we need to understand in order to understand what happens um, with their elements of the story later. I think in many ways the Tamil Muslim uh, communities of the Tamil Nadu coast are, if you like, one of the threads of chronological continuity through the book, because they appear from the earliest times and at, in many ways they remain very significant to the Bay of Bengal's economic circuits to this day. Um, the Tamil Muslims... Um, Muslim settlements in Tamil Nadu were amongst the earliest on the Indian subcontinent. They date uh, back to the 8th century AD. Um, there are very complex histories of how those Muslim communities came to be. Certainly, uh, some of it has to do with um, trade and intermarriage between the Arab world and, and South India across the Arabian Sea from that period of time. And then the descendants of those mixed communities very much settled in the coastal towns of South India. Uh, the elite among the community are known as Marakayars, and they were um, really very successful as traders around the Bay of Bengal from long before the Portuguese arrived. And certainly they were not in any sense eclipsed by the arrival of Europeans in the early modern period. Um, they had their own networks, which really reached from South India all the way around the coast of the Bay of Bengal, including coastal Burma, but certainly around the Indonesian archipelago. And because these were relatively elite, socially elite traders, um, around the Malay world, many of them um, intermarried into local families. They formed mixed communities. So uh, you have in 
the port cities of Southeast Asia, particularly of the Malay world, you have Marakayers, Tamil Muslims, really quite senior in many ruling families from quite an early stage. You certainly have in a lot of Malay court chronicles, there are often characters who are identifiably Tamil Muslim from their names, who wield power in court, who are married to uh, the ruler's daughters. Many of them maintained families um, on both sides of the sea, so they might have had families in South India as well as in Southeast Asia. So I think they're really, if we think of the Bay of Bengal as a cultural and a trading space from the earliest times, I think Tamil Muslims play a very important role in, um, as a sort of social cultural glue, as well as as very successful traders around that world. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And their story extends into the next chapter. So one of the things that uh, you mentioned in this chapter and that I briefly alluded to was the importance of human beings as a commodity in this early trade network in the Bay of Bengal. And the next chapter goes on to describe the story of the Bay of Bengal as a human sea, a sea of humans. Now, this is happening in the context of a description of the British expansion across the bay in the 19th century as their conquest of eastern India and establishment of Penang and Singapore on the other side of the bay really starts to develop um, and intensify the kinds of connections that, that really keep the bay together as a sort of region. Now, as the Industrial Revolution is creating a new demand for Asia's raw materials and British imperial um, sort of commerce in this area really affects all aspects of Bay life, the importance of its impact on migrant labor and maritime labor becomes a really central part of this story. You talk specifically about Tamil migrants in this story but also talk about convicted prisoners from India as sources of labor. And this is the, the importance of human labor to connecting the various regions around this bay becomes really, really striking. So because the importance of human, of human labor to cementing connections across this region continues to be important throughout the story. And in fact, you describe the early sort of embryonic roots of the story as being an interest in labor migration. Can you talk um, a little bit here about the importance of labor migration to the transformations that are happening in the Bay at this point of the story? I think we reach a, a very fundamental moment of transformation in the second half of the 19th century, because until then, I think uh, what I tried to show in the earliest chapters of the book was that the Bay had, for a very long period of time, been connected by constant small-scale circulations of teachers and merchants and traders um, and pilgrims. But we're never talking about large numbers of people until the middle of the 19th century. And I think what happens, uh, particularly after the opening of the Suez Canal and the rise of steam shipping after 1869, 1870, is there is a massive transformation of scale in the amount of human movement around the Bay. And I suppose one of the key arguments in the book is really what makes the Bay of Bengal distinctive is the sheer scale of migration that took place around it. If we look at it in the context of the Indian Ocean, which were um, there's a big, there's a, there's a long established tradition of historiography looking at the Indian Ocean. The Bay of Bengal was um, far more intensively connected by migration than any other part of the Indian Ocean by, by several orders of magnitude. And I think that the movement of labor is really what gives this region the depth of connectedness that I argue from this point in the book onwards, it really starts to take on. And we're dealing with um, the movement of up to 28, 29 uh, million people between 1840 and 1940 
um, most of them to just three destinations, that's Ceylon, Burma, and the Strait Settlements in Malaya from the eastern coast of India. And so we're dealing with a truly vast labor migration. A lot of it, one of its distinctive characteristics is its circularity. And in that sense, it's not dissimilar to Chinese migration to Southeast Asia at the same time. And that these were not migrants in the traditional transatlantic sense of the term. These were sojourners. On average, they had stayed between three and seven years in Southeast Asia before going back to India. And then often again, they would make second or third journeys back out to Southeast Asia. Uh, mortality rates were extremely high. So, of course, some of them never returned. But this was not a migration for settlement so much as a massive circulation of people back and forth. And I think that distinctive characteristic of this movement, as well as its scale, uh, is what gives it its cultural and perhaps its historical distinctiveness in this context. Great. Thank you so much. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned, in addition to the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 as being transformative in this respect, was the emergence of steam, specifically the steamship revolution, as you talk about in the fourth chapter of the book. Now, you talk um, quite a bit in this part of the book about the impact of this revolution, not just for... uh, kind of intensifying this volume and patterns of migration, but also for changing the ways, if I can paraphrase here or sort of sum up at least what I as one reader experienced from this part of the book, transforming the ways in which the environment of the sea and the human movement across it um, acted in concert. And so you talk about steam not just from the perspective of impacting human migration, but also impacting the circulation of climate and of monsoons in particular. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening at this part of the story in terms of the environmental transformations that are happening, if at all, um, in this region of the Bay of Bengal? I suppose there's a double effect that steam has in that respect, where on the one hand, Uh, Steam was, in a sense, supposed to liberate the Bay of Bengal from the monsoons. Um, Once you have steamships, you're no longer quite so tied uh, to the southwest and the northeast monsoons being absolutely determinant of shipping schedules as they had been in the age of sail. So one of the things you start to get is year-round shipping. You get ships that really operate to a timetable uh, relatively unaffected by changes in the monsoon. There were certainly shipwrecks. There were certainly uh, very dangerous storms for which the Bay of Bengal is notorious that continued to be a threat. But you do see that shipping becomes both quicker and safer, but most of all, more predictable. And yet, paradoxically, that allows for a much more intensive environmental interdependence around the Bay of Bengal in other ways. And by that, I mean, it's the steamship that allows that mass movement of Indian labor to clear the forests of Malaya, to open up the Irrawaddy Delta through Indian finance and through Indian urban labor um, to the massive expansion of Burma's rice trade. So what you start to see is really that the ecology of the Bay of Bengal Rim starts to become incredibly closely connected uh, by the expansion of capitalism around the Bay, by European investors plowing money into the plantation economies of Malaya and Sri Lanka um, and 
the massive expansion in Burma's rice trade. And so at the same time as, as steam technology appears to free the Bay of Bengal from its age-old cycles from the monsoons, um, what you have is actually a much more closely interdependent um, ecological economic region so that the monsoons, far from becoming irrelevant, start to determine um, prices and demand and also in other ways the rhythm of labor migration. So the migration from India to Burma was particularly seasonal. And so in that sense, um, the monsoon continues to shape the movement of people, but also now the landscapes of the entire Bay of Bengal Rim. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, you talk in this part of the book, um, in Chapter 4 in particular, and then extending into Chapter 5, about Ceylon, about what's happening in Burma, and also about what's happening in Malaya. And in the next chapter of the book, in Chapter 5, you mention um, the importance of rubber in Malaya. I think you put it, Malaya's rubber changed the world. So since this is such an important part of the story, can you talk a little bit about that? What does it mean to say that, at least in this part of the story, Malaya's rubber changed the world? And what do we have to understand about that to understand what comes next? I think I was struck myself by just how connected this Bay of Bengal story is by the 1920s to the history of global capitalism. And I think Malaya's rubber is one key to that. If we bear in mind that Malayan rubber supplied up to 80% of the American automobile industry's needs right through the 1920s. And in that sense, these Tamil plantation workers in Malaya are absolutely central to Henry Ford's revolution, to the rise of consumer capitalism in the United States. We're not used to thinking about it maybe in quite those terms. This was for so long seen as a very specific regional history of Indian labor migration within the British Empire to Southeast Asia. But as soon as we think about the circulation of the commodities that that labor was producing, we see that the Bay of Bengal is really plugged into a very global story. And I think Malayan rubber is crucial to that, but so too is Burmese rice. Burma becomes the biggest rice exporter in the world in the 1910s, 1920s. Um, Sri Lanka becomes one of the biggest tea exporters in the world. So this Bay of Bengal economy, I suppose I'm trying to argue, is, is really important to understanding a lot of a global history in this period, as, as well as understanding the region in its internal uh, movements and transformations. What are some specific ways that Malayan rubber becomes so important to the global economy? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think, above all, it's the link to the U.S. automobile industry, because Malayan rubber was used, um, a lot of the demand was actually for tires for American cars. Um, But as industrialization advanced, not only in the advanced industrial economies of the the West and the North, but also um, other Asian cities, you had all sorts of subsidiary uses for rubber, um, and that demand really led to the demand for labor that meant that in the 1920s was when uh, labor migration to Malaya and to Ceylon and to Burma reached its all-time peak. Great. Thank you. Now, also in this part of the book, before we move on to um, a, a really major transformation that happens in the 1930s, right, and, and just after the 1930s. Before that, you talk also in this chapter of the book, in Chapter 5, about the notion of a Tamil diaspora mm-hmm. and the importance of thinking through that. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to me really significant for how we understand not just the Bay of Bengal, but how we understand and speak with and speak of diaspora and diaspora cities. 
I think one of the things I try to do in that chapter is to see if we could use um, the term diaspora quite specifically, because I think the term diaspora has, of course, come to be applied to, to almost any migrant group and, and certainly in everyday um, usage. I'm quite comfortable with that. We talk about um, all sorts of diasporas, especially in the big multicultural cities that many of us live in today. Uh, migrant groups tend to be interchangeably referred to as diasporas. And I think that makes sense to the extent that obviously they do maintain very dense connections with their homelands. What I'm trying to say in this chapter is actually that I don't think we can really talk about a Tamil diaspora until relatively late in the story that I'm telling. And what I mean by that is until the 1920s, there was such fluidity of movement between India and Southeast Asia that no permanent or settled sense of diaspora, I think, formed. When I use the term diaspora, I tend to assume that it has the connotation of a certain permanence of exile, a certain permanence of settlement away from the homeland. And I don't think that can be taken for granted until a lot of things start to change in the 1920s and 30s. And so it's only from that point that I think it makes sense to talk of a Tamil diaspora. Part of that has to do with cultural institutions. It's in the 1920s that you start getting a flourishing Tamil language press in Malaya and Singapore and in Burma. And it's that press, I think, which plays a major role in fostering a certain self-consciousness of there being a Tamil diaspora. The press starts to discuss, um, not using the term diaspora as such, but starts to discuss Indians overseas, starts to discuss the Tamil world. I'm sort of, I was struck really linguistically by all the different ways in which the Tamil press started to uh, think of itself as speaking for a diaspora. You start to get schools and clubs, educational, social institutions, but I argue that all of those really only come when the velocity of circulation between India and Southeast Asia, if anything, um, decreases. That it's only when you start getting a more settled Tamil, or indeed one could use the same argument for many other South Asian populations in Southeast Asia, that you get a more settled uh, sense of a diaspora with firmer internal and external boundaries. Now, one of the things that's um, listening to you talk about all of this, and it's really it's wonderful and it's really striking to me, it reminds me how important throughout the book, but also in our conversation right now about it, is the is the centrality of movement, right? Even in just um, describing one of the problems with the idea of diaspora being its permanence, mm. again, evokes the importance of uh, movement and circulation to the kinds of phenomena that we're talking about here that are so central, at least from um, from what I, I'm gathering, to understanding the, the history of this region. And it raises for me a question I didn't actually plan on asking you this, but it's emerging kind of organically, and I think it's um, it's coming from how fascinating it is to hear you talk about this. A lot, uh, when we think about circulation and movement as historians, it brings to mind a very fluid, a very watery, a very liquid kind of set of metaphors, right? And mm-hmm. so much about this um, is about circulation and movement. To what extent, if at all, do you find that working on the history of a sea and thinking about these sort of metaphors of movement and circulation has transformed, if at all, your the way you think more generally as a historian? Has sort of thinking oceanically and thinking liquidly change the kinds of questions that you're asking in other areas of your research? That's a wonderful question, Carla. I think going back, if you, 
in a sense, even before we started to think in terms of oceans and flows, the academic study of migration, I think, has for a very long time been dominated by watery metaphors. One thinks, even in public political discourse on migration, you think of, of floods of migrants and tides of migrants and flows of migrants. And I think those liquid metaphors, I certainly became more aware of them when I was actually doing this in the context of writing oceanic history. I suppose... If anything, I've become a little bit more cautious with some of those metaphors, because one of the things that writing this book has made very clear to me is that mobility depends on immobility. And that sort of rootedness or the static side of my story, I think, is, if you like, the shadow of this book, that every sort of mobility that I write about in the book, almost every sort of mobility has its flip side, whether that's communities that don't move or indeed can't move or the ways in which mobility and immobility are uh, very intimately in embrace with one another. So I suppose, on the one hand, I'm, I'm profoundly stimulated by a lot of these metaphors of um, fluidity. And yet, writing about it, I constantly found myself uh, back with rather tangible things, whether that's uh, once mobile workers then marooned on the plantations or um, very mobile yet deeply unfree workers who are tied by various forms of debt or even indenture, or the difference between, if you like, the most fundamental difference between those who leave and those who stay. So I think, in a way, I feel like I have a lot more work to do with mobility as a theme uh, and as a metaphor, um, partly by exploring its limits and by exploring its other side, which is immobility and, and, and rootedness. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So speaking of immobility, this actually brings us really nicely into the next chapter, Crossings Interrupted. In the 1930s, the Bay of Bengal closed down, and it closed down dramatically, and it closed down with amazing speed. So can you bring us into this part of the story by talking about that? What's going on? In what ways is it closed down? And what do we need to understand about the causes of that closing to understand the larger points you're making in this part of the chapter? I think there are three interrelated things that from the 1930s and into the 1940s bring a very abrupt halt to all of this uh, fluidity and mobility that the first few chapters of the book have really set up. And to me, this is a big puzzle that the book addresses. I don't think it resolves it, which is if this is such a connected region, if this is such a natural region where people move around on, in, on such scale, uh, how can it if you like, disappear so quickly? How can it come to such a crashing end? And I think there are three things that happen. One is purely economic, and it is the effect of the depression of the 1930s. What that does is quite immediately leads to a plummeting in the uh, global demand for both Burmese rice and Malayan rubber. Um, rice exports hold up, but the price plummets and, and Malayan rubber exports just collapse. And of course, this leads to massive problems of unemployment. For the first time in the 1930s, for the first time since the 1910s, Indeed, since the 1870s, apart from a blip during the First World War, you see a reversal of the trend where more people are returning from Southeast Asia to India and China than are going out. And that's the first time this has happened in decades. You have a, a net out migration from Southeast Asia. But I think that the political effects of the Depression if, are, if anything, even more important in the long term. The Depression brings about for the first time, and this is relatively late in global terms, immigration controls in Malaya. Until the 1930s, there was virtually no control whatsoever on the 
entry and exit of people from British Malaya and the Strait Settlements uh, from the 1930s did start to shift. And the reason it starts to shift is everywhere in Southeast Asia, as elsewhere in the world, the Depression also sparks a significant outpouring of local nationalism. And while I certainly not argue that there had been no tension until then. It's only in the 1930s that there is an organized political movement against Indian and Chinese migration to Southeast Asia on the part of local nationalists, and they start to influence the thinking of the British colonial state in very significant ways. I think this goes furthest, and it is certainly most dramatic in Burma, from where from 1930 there is overt anti-Indian violence, which is spearheaded by certain radical Burmese monks and by youthful nationalist groups. And what starts with a labor dispute on the docks of Rangoon in 1930 turns into a much wider wave of anti-immigrant violence, which coincides with the millenarian Sayasan rebellion, which is a rural uprising that happens um, during the Depression. And that kind of violence flares up again in Rangoon in 1937. Malaya doesn't witness violence in the same way, but it certainly does uh, witness a hardening of tone where you start to get Malay nationalists who are making quite explicitly uh, anti-immigration arguments, which the colonial state takes quite seriously because a colonial state is very used to thinking in terms of the indigenous and the outsiders. And you start to get a generation of colonial administrators who are quite sympathetic to these claims that migration ought to be controlled. And I suppose the final part of that story is on the other side, which is in the 1930s, Indian nationalists in India start to become very hostile to emigration. This is the moment where they're starting to imagine themselves as the future rulers of an Indian nation state. Uh, many of them are left-leading. They believe, as so many did, in uh, top-down planned economic development. And they start saying by the mid-30s, well, this labor, all of these labor migrants shouldn't be leaving India for pennies and they use that phrase, they should be devoting themselves to the industrialization of India. So you start to get a real political shift in the 30s, which starts with, but is by no means confined to the economic depression. Now, what's the impact of Japan landing in Southeast Asia and the sort of impact of more broadly World War II on what's happening in this region? It's absolutely fundamental. And I suppose one thing to say is, it perhaps has an even greater impact than it might otherwise have done because it comes so uh, closely after the Depression. And so, if you like, um, the Japanese occupation of Southeast Asia brings the Bay of Bengal to a standstill, but it does so at a time when that movement had already started to dry up for political and for economic reasons. But the Japanese occupation of the Bay of Bengal really brings traffic across this body of water to an almost complete standstill for the first time in centuries. And that's unprecedented the way this happens. And this has all sorts of impacts on the Bay of Bengal. Uh, the political impact is huge. Most of the Bay of Bengal's coast had been ruled by the British under very different forms of direct and indirect rule um, from the early, 18, uh, early 19th century until the Second World War. Suddenly you have uh, Japanese rule over most of Southeast Asia, but that rule does not extend to India. So the very division that we are so used to making now between South and Southeast Asia is in fact a byproduct of the Second World War. The first time Southeast Asia is used commonly as a policy political term is when the Allies set up Southeast Asia Command in 1943 to mirror the extent of Japanese conquest. And it was clear from that point that India 
was no longer Southeast Asia. So in that intellectual sense, of course, well, very important. Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry. Have you lost me? Sorry. Oh, no, I think we lost you um, uh, just for a, a quick second, but I bet you came right back. So no problem. Okay, great. Are we, we're, we're okay. Gonna... I think we're okay. Okay, great. Um, so really um, taking off from that, one of the things that you just um, alluded to is the rise of this division between South Asia and Southeast Asia's areas. And indeed, in this part of the book, you are, I think, really productively reminding us as historians of the importance of historicizing and contextualizing these area studies kinds of disciplines and these differentiations between uh, regions of study and regions of political engagement, regions of cultural engagement um, that tend to structure our experience as academics, that tend to structure our experience of education and of writing, but that we can, I think, a little bit too easily take for granted. Why, um, why or how is it important uh, for you to think about this in the context of the way the story has shaped our uh, this kind of regionality of even our scholarly studies and and how might this transform the way we consider that moving forward? I suppose there's been a, there's been a, a great recognition in Southeast Asian studies more than in South Asian studies for quite a long time now that a lot of the boundaries that we work with as scholars are. Um, arbitrary or are very much to the politics of the time. So I think Southeast Asianists have been aware that Southeast Asia is in many ways an artifact of the Cold War and of the Second World War. Um, I think South Asianists have been less keen to embrace the idea that South Asia might um, need to, to, to look east as well as to look west. But I think that is also now starting to happen. And I think that the advantage of thinking beyond these regions is that we get a more accurate representation, I think, of, of cultural regions as opposed to just political ones. I think in political terms, that division still makes a lot of sense because that's how regional institutions are structured. ASEAN does not include South Asia and ASEAN plays a very major role in Southeast Asia today. So I think political scientists using this term are, are right to do so. But cultural historians, I think, might want to see that actually a lot of the movements of people and ideas and cultures are not and never have been confined by those particular boundaries and that possibly by sticking too closely to those boundaries, there's a lot that we miss. And certainly one of the things that I realized that we missed was the whole history of the Bay of Bengal as a region that uh, bridges south and southeast Asia. Now, in this part of the book as well, I, I don't want to move to the final chapter without um, paying some attention to the importance of transformations that you locate here in terms of citizenship. So this closing of and transformation of the Bay of Bengal in this part of the story after World War II is also changing what it is to be an individual in this region and what it is to be an individual citizen in particular. So can you talk a little bit about that part of the story? What ha what's happening um, in this part of the story in terms of how citizenship is emerging and transforming for the people who are living and moving in this region? I think citizenship emerged as, as really one of the key themes of the book once the book gets into the 1930s. And one of the arguments is that even before independence from colonial rule, the question of citizenship had started to assert itself in the 1910s and 20s and 30s. 
in terms of the question of who was responsible for the welfare of people who had traveled long distances and crossed borders. So this idea of Indians overseas emerges quite early on, long before India's independence. The idea that somehow the Indian state, still the Indian colonial state, was responsible for the welfare of these Indians overseas. At the same time, in the 20s and 30s, you get a very... uh, well-developed debate on citizenship coming from local nationalists in Malaya, in Burma, in Sri Lanka, uh, really thinking about who belongs and who doesn't belong in these societies. And so you get a lot of debates about which communities are indigenous, what rights outsiders ought to have. And of course, when each of these countries becomes independent in the 1940s, these questions, these debates start to take on very practical implications as constitutions are drawn up, as citizenship laws are drafted. And what happens is that a lot of communities around the Bay really find themselves people out of place because as in keeping with global conventions at the time, citizenship really did assume um, a congruence between where one was born, where one lived, and where one had one's loyalties, and really didn't allow very much for diasporas, for multiple identities, and certainly not for mobility. So what happens in the 1940s is really the Bay of Bengal becomes a region governed by passports, like every other region in the world. And people who'd perhaps previously not had to think in these terms had very difficult choices to make about their citizenship. And sometimes these choices were not theirs to make. Um, Sri Lanka is perhaps the most extreme case of this, where very large numbers of Tamil plantation workers who had often been there for decades, if not generations in Sri Lanka, uh, were, were denied citizenship both by Sri Lanka and by India. And you had very, very many other communities and individuals who sort of found themselves caught out by these new citizenship laws, or found themselves having to fight quite hard to be recognized as citizenship, as citizens of the countries in Southeast Asia in which they had decided to make their lives. Thank you so much. Now, as we move to the last body chapter of the book, there are at least a couple of major things going on here. So at the turn of the 20th century, uh, 21st century, rather, the Bay of Bengal, as you describe really compellingly here, is once again at the heart of international politics. And here, this is in the context of uh, India and China, which both see the Bay as, as you put it, a frontier in their competition over energy, over shipping lanes, and over culture. Now, in addition to this, in this part of the book, you also talk about the Bay Um, And this is related um, in some ways to um, understanding the Bay in the context of Indian Chinese engagement. But the Bay is also the front line, as you put it here, of Asia's experience of climate change. And this chapter eight of the book brings us back really um, foundationally to the importance of understanding the Bay in terms of its environmental history and its environmental its environmental phenomena. So can you talk a little bit about that? In what way is the Bay right now at the frontier of Asia's engagement with climate change? And what do we need to understand about the manifestations of that to appreciate um, the way that we need to engage issues of the climate and the environment into how we understand the Bay right now? I think... In terms of the density of population around its coasts, in terms of the fact that for centuries the Bay has been notorious for particularly powerful storm surges and 
there is a lot of evidence that some perhaps those storms are becoming more intense, if not necessarily more frequent, uh, with the noticeable effects of climate change. We are talking about some of the most vulnerable places in the world in terms of populations at the front line of experiencing these environmental uh, changes. One only needs to look um, at the very recent cyclone Mahasen that hit the Orissa coast uh, to see just how many people lie in harm's way. The, coastal population of the Bay of Bengal Rim is something like half a billion people. And of course, these are very densely populated areas where all sorts of development is uh, putting people in of greater vulnerability. So just in that very human and very concrete sense, I think the Bay of Bengal is at the front line of Asia's experience of climate change, though, of course, countries like the Philippines, as we've tragically seen recently, are are just as vulnerable on the um, other side of the South China Sea. But I suppose the question that I want to ask is really how does that or doesn't that relate to the Bay's longer history as an environmental space? Um, The fact that actually for centuries the Bay has been notorious for its turbulence, for its cyclones, um, for the threats that it has posed to the people who live along its coasts and the ways they have come to deal with that. There's no question in my mind that the scale of that threat, I think, is is. Not, no longer comparable to any of the things that I've written about them. Marine biologists have written that the Bay of Bengal's coasts have changed more in the last 30 years than in the previous millennium in terms of pollutants, in terms of um, changing composition of the sea itself. And so in a way, we're dealing with something that's very new. And yet I think what I'm trying to show in the book is that a lot of the institutions that we have to deal with those problems, a lot of the geographies that shape our imagination of that region, and indeed a lot of the borders that can constrain or enable the movement of people around that part of the world um, are shaped by history. And so even if I think the environmental challenges the Bay of Bengal faces today are are unquestionably uh, without precedent in the past, nevertheless, I think that it's the history of that region actually has a lot to offer us in terms of thinking about the future, in terms of answering questions like why there has been so relatively little cooperation across borders on environmental issues in the Bay of Bengal. I think a lot of that has to do with that earlier 20th century history of um, conflicts over sovereignty and borders and attempts to to stem the movement of people and to think about uh, a more self-sufficient national approach to environmental and economic problems. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we move to the epilogue of the book, uh, Crossing the Bay of Bengal, among many other things that this epilogue does, is it reintroduces us to a character we met at the very beginning of this story, and this is Palanasami Kumaran. This is the man that you interviewed, who was in his 90s, who had traveled to Penang in 1937. So coming back to this story here at the close, what do we understand about him now now having um, been through the biography of this sea, been through the various interlocking histories of the region, how do you um, want us to see him in a new light as opposed to how we would have understood him at the very beginning of the story when we met him at first? That's a really good question. I think in a way I'd like us to see him in almost two contradictory ways. In one way, I would like to see him as, in many ways, a representative character for the book as a whole. And yet he's so far from representative. He is utterly distinctive as an individual. And so on the one hand, 
he reminds us of this whole history of migration that spans the 19th and 20th centuries and which gestures to a much longer history of cultural connection. I would like us to see that in some ways he's no stranger um, to the land in which he turned up in 1937, that his journey there had been enabled by um, decades and indeed centuries of prior connection, but that it was part of a very particular moment in imperial history, in global history, in the history of capitalism, and indeed in environmental history. As a rubber tapper, he was himself in a very, very small, small way, uh, one of the agents of one of the largest transformations of land and forest that modern Asia has seen. And yet, in the end, I would like us not to think of him as representative, representative at all, but of one of so many individuals that the book has often just touched upon in terms of their lives. And the striking thing to me is how unpredictable his life has been, as as everyone's life um, so often is when these large, long-distance movements are concerned. But he has spent 70 years of his life somewhere where he never intended to stay, and so many of the things that happened to him are contingent or they were the product of chance or unexpected circumstances or circumstances beyond his control. And through all of that, he's made sense of his life. He's made a, a wonderful life for himself. But I think the fact that I chose to start and end the book with that was partly just to bring us back to the fact that this is about individuals. This is about journeys. This is about um, expectations often not being fulfilled and often being exceeded. And so I would like us to think of him both as sort of one of, of millions and as an individual like the other individual I try to write about in the book. Wonderful. Well, Sunil, thank you so much. We're now at the end of our time. Um, but before we go, I want to just kind of talk about a couple more things. And so first of all, there's an extraordinary amount of material in the book. It's an extraordinarily rich story, and not just in terms of all of the different sorts of historical accounts that you give us, but also all of the individuals that you introduce us to that we only really had a chance to talk about, um, just a, a few little um, representations of. Is there anything in particular about the book that we haven't had a chance to get, uh, a, that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? I suppose the main thing that the book tries to do is, is to bring together the history of migration with environmental history. And I suppose... I see that as a region, as an, as an area of scholarship where, where I feel there's a lot more work for us to do, because I think diaspora studies and environmental history have, have often been very, very separate fields. They haven't had a lot to say to each other. And in many ways, this book was an experiment in trying to think about um, human cultural history and natural history as as not separate, but really in quite concrete terms, you know, how do these massive movements of people and the very microscopic cultural transformations that brings also tell us something about one of the quickest deforestations in the 20th century in terms of the forest frontier of Southeast Asia. And how do how does nature actually at the same time then shape people's experiences of migration? One, one of the ways I came to the environmental history dimension of this book was unexpectedly through people's individual stories that so often when people talked about their migrant journeys, they talked about the climate, they talked about the landscape, they talked about the land. And it was that bringing together of human experience um, and environmental history on quite a large scale that this book uh, began to try to do. And yet I think that's a, that's an area where there's, there's a lot more work to be done. Just along those lines, in order to affect more work like that, how does the nature of historical research and specifically the nature of the archive 
broadly conceived that the individual historian um, takes their or builds their narrative from have to change in order to be able to tell these kinds of interwoven environmental and human histories. So how does this impact the way we think about the archive? I think that's a, a wonderful question. And in many ways, it was the most difficult question that I faced in, in writing and putting this, together this book, because in a sense, the archive was, was absolutely everywhere. And I think a certain eclecticism had to creep into the way I approached this book. It uses material really from wherever I could get my hands on it, um, from the, if you like, the conventional colonial state archives to um, a lot of oral history went into this book. Uh, visual sources went into this book. Um, the kinds of sources that historians of science, environmental historians are much more used to working with um, went into this book. And I think that I would certainly say that that sort of eclecticism is probably where we will start to be able to bring together some of these rather different dimensions of history, which have traditionally and for good reason been studied by specialists in different subfields. Um, I found legal sources really fascinating as a way of getting both at individual stories and at much larger sets of changes, because that's often where um, otherwise undocumented individuals tell their stories or make their trace, um, leave their trace upon the archive. I think I found that the travel dimension to this project was really important in bringing together the human and the environmental dimensions. Uh, just uh, being in these places, talking to people about their lives now certainly raised a lot of questions that I then took back to the archive. And I think, if you like, bringing certain ethnographic methods into our historical scholarship, as so many of us, I think, have been trying to do for a long time now, um, also opens up new dimensions in bringing together these different kinds of history. Wonderful. So, and thank you very much for sharing that. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on a phenomenal book that I learned a ton from, and it's been such a pleasure to talk. Thank about. you so much. Thank you. So now that the project um, is out and is materialized, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Um, the next project, which I'm, I'm quite well well into at the moment is, is, is a project that I was fortunate to have um, the support of the European Research Council to do, which is really to take the environmental dimension of crossing the Bay of Bengal and, and really develop that much further. So what I'm doing now is really trying to write uh, quite specifically an environmental history of the Bay of Bengal's coasts um, in a way that comes out of the book. And in, in many ways, the last couple of chapters of this book really do uh, gesture to what that new project is all about, uh, but which will involve a, a lot of new research, often now with, with people who aren't migrants in the strict sense of the word. I'm hoping to do a lot more research with people who live from the sea but who can't be thought of as migrants, fishing communities, coastal officials, um, others who are very much part of this story but who don't really um, appear as quite so significant um, as actors in crossing the Bay of Bengal, but I think who, whose stories are crucial to trying to understand in the largest scale, the, the impact of climate change on the Bay of Bengal and what historians can bring to that debate. I suppose that's the biggest question that's motivating me now and whether we can think of that really huge problem without losing sight of what we as historians, I think, do well, which is to focus on on texture, on specifics, on individuals, on context. Um, you know, what can our micro histories bring to studying these very large and very interdisciplinary problems? Well, best of luck on that project and congratulations again on this. And it's really been a pleasure. And I will look forward to talking with you about that book as well. Thank you so much, Carla. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs>